0: I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned.
1: The OG Don't hurt
0: nobody. This damn clean, on. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of UpZoned, To show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny. I'm an urban planner in Kansas City, and joining me today is Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, Abby. Super nice to be here.
0: Yes. Always good to see you on a Friday. I am very happy to share that it is officially springtime. It's like 75 degrees here.
1: So oh my gosh, you're I, I'm at my
0: best now. Yeah.
1: So for me, it's two and a half hours roughly home from the airport. And last night, it took me almost four hours because I drove home in an ice storm blizzard. And there were probably three dozen different cars and semis in the ditch. It is snowing right now. We have at least in all areas, at least two feet of snow on the ground. In some areas, it's three or four feet. And it is not going to be spring here until uh, May or June. Right now, it does not seem like we will be rid of snow by May, which is crazy. And let's say that we were rid of snow by May, you would have freaking Noah's flood here because there's so much like if we had a week of 70 degrees, we would have to build an arc. That's how much snow is on the ground, ready to go. So this this is a disaster waiting to happen outside my window. And it's cold, right? Like it's it's I've had the heater on all day in the office because it's cold. So this is Minnesota complaining. Like, can you hear the desperation of my voice? I love winter. We'll tolerate winter for a long, long time. Uh, every Minnesotan reaches a point where like they can no longer tolerate winter. And I'm, I'm, I'm now
0: you've, at that You finally cracked.
1: Well, you, you can't. <laughs> you can't go ice skating anymore. You can't go sledding anymore. You can't go ice fishing anymore. You can't go skiing anymore. There's like nothing nice to do right now, except just be cold and miserable. And I actually, you know, took the dog for a walk this week and fell because there's just these random ice patches all over the place now because, you know, it it melts a little bit in the day and then freezes at night. If you wear your yak tracks out 90% of the time, there's no ice, but then you hit that little patch and, yeah, I'm ready to be done. And you know, I apologize. My baseball team beat yours uh yesterday. Well,
0: we don't need to talk about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I don't know. I I'm assuming that Target Field will have be snow free by the time they come and play the first game here. But if it was if it was in Brainerd, it would not be snow free till mid-May.
0: Well, I'm yeah. really sorry to hear that. That has been the strong towns weather update we have an obligation each week (laughs) as as midwesterners it's part of our contract for living here Midwest
1: weather talk by abby (laughs) and chuck
0: (laughs) that's actually going to be a spin-off podcast where we just talk about the weather and how cold chuck is Mm -hmm. and how unhappy (laughs) i am with the weather in kansas city too hot too cold
1: Yeah, if we do that, I will bring out the deep Minnesota accent for that one. So we'll have to get a couple other Minnesota. Oh yeah, so we can talk. You know, like Minnesotans, we'll talk about the weather and stuff.
0: Yeah, (laughs) sounds good to me. So everyone, stay tuned for that. Okay, so the article that we are covering today is published in KUOW, which is Seattle's NPR news station, by Joshua McNichols. This article is entitled "Small Apartments from 100 Years Ago Offer Townhome Alternative." So, like major city, all major cities in America, Seattle is facing a housing shortage. But this isn't the first time that the city has had an undersupply of housing. 100 years ago, Seattle faced an even bigger shortage than it does now. Between 1900 and 1910, the city's population had tripled due to the Alaskan gold rush and booming timber industry. And this article basically draws clues from the types of buildings that were developed in response to that crisis. And that response came in the form of these small, boxy, walk-up apartment buildings scaled similarly to a house. These buildings fit, you know, symmetrically four to six Units within the buildings arranged around a shared staircase and a shared large front porch, typically. According to the article, these buildings are an ideal alternative to the townhouse model and potentially more affordable if built today. A quoted resident of this building type in Seattle named Kevin Murphy calls these cowboy hotels, which is actually what I'm just going to start referring to them as. Love love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I think it's a lot cooler (laughs) than calling them uh, walk-ups or small apartment buildings. These are cowboy hotels. Cowboy hotels. Yes. And many cities have them. In Kansas City, we call them colonnades. And each unit actually has its own little front porch rather than having one big shared front porch. But I like the term cowboy hotels. So according to this article, the efficiency of cowboy hotels comes from basically their form. They're very compact. They're energy efficient. They require less stairways than townhomes because the units are uh, stacked around one staircase rather than smushed kind of side by side, each having their own staircase. And for many people, this offers a more spacious layout of the unit that is better for families. Townhomes have more of a tall and skinny layout that is not ideal for everybody, and they can be very expensive to build. So there are laws in the Seattle region that are keeping cowboy hotels from offering a viable alternative to really large-scale apartments and townhomes and single-family buildings uh, zoning and building code laws are basically totally geared towards delivering other types of housing, particularly townhomes. And the rules really need to evolve in order to re-deliver these legacy building types. So I'm a huge fan. I, we have these all over Kansas City. And I just love these cowboy hotels, these small walk-up apartment buildings. I wish that we could build them on so many different, you know, vacant lots and neighborhoods all throughout cities. I live two doors down from one. They're one of my favorite building types. And I wish that we could have more of them. And I, I'm i interested in kind of the discussion about whether or not they do offer an alternative ownership opportunity, because that's an ideal that I love as well. Of course, devil's in the details when we're talking about actually, you know, condoing things and how that's actually structured. But I have a dream that we can actually use these buildings as an, a, a viable alternative, lower cost ownership opportunity.
1: I think there's no doubt that they could serve that because they served that in the past. I think if we want to get to that, we have to actually discuss why these aren't happening. And as with every conversation about housing, there is this kind of zoning regulatory process discussion and then there is this adjacent financial discussion and you'll note that this article mentions nothing about the financial side like there's no there's no conversation about the financing and i think maybe i, I would just like to start there because we lament the condo units and we lament you know the way we go about building the the, the one thing in this article the guy with the cowboy hotel I just say cowboy hotel and everybody knows what building I'm talking about because all the other buildings around it are modern. And he uses the term modern. He uses it in a way that you would say modernist kind of architecture. But the reality is, is they're not modernist architecture. What they are is they're just modern construction. And that construction itself is designed to fit into a standardized financial product. Now, understand if you have two products in a housing market that are going to create four housing units, and one of them is a non-standardized, bottom-up, individual contractor—it's it's it's Monty Anderson uh, or, or or some incremental developer out there building this incremental unit—they have to spend time at the bank getting kind of non-standard financing to do this kind of approach, but ultimately the price is cheaper to build it. And then there's product B, which is more expensive to build, less customized, more um, you know, kind of in a sense modern or looks more manufactured. The the buildings are a little bit indistinguishable from themselves from each other because, you know, you've got a, a national developer with money coming in, building these things over and over and over every time they can find the formula that works. Those buildings might ultimately be more expensive, but they're going to be built anyway because there is a national market for that paper. Again, this gets back to a notion that I've said a few times. When When we see a transaction going on in a house, when someone buys a house or someone builds a commercial building, we often think that the transaction is a purchaser buying a house that is actually the secondary transaction. The primary transaction is a mortgage being created that someone is purchasing on a secondary market. That is the product. The idea that there's a house attached to it and that there's a house being, you know, that there's that's an ancillary part of it. That's like a necessary part to the ultimate product, which is this mortgage product being created. And so what you see is the market actually responding to the financial market for paper and is more sensitive to that than the actual supply demand, what contractors will build, what people want to live in market at the block level. Let me summarize that insight by saying this, the building might be more expensive, but there's a bigger commercial paper market or there's a bigger residential paper market for it at the Wall Street level. Therefore, that's what gets built. And even though the Cowboy Hotel would be cheaper, fit in with the neighborhood, be more desirable, have higher profit margins, more people who want to live there, that does not generate the paper that can be traded on a stock exchange the way that the other product does. And therefore, there's less of a market for it.
0: Yeah, so that's one of the things that immediately came to mind because... I don't have a clear understanding about, from the financial point of view, how these sell as units because townhomes are fee simple. They're side by side. That means that the land and the building are both owned by one property owner. I believe you can just have a mortgage and you know can have mortgages for each townhome. And there's not as much coordination around really shared common spaces or building maintenance. So it's just not as risky whereas a cowboy hotel would be a condo model and I don't know, can you can you get a mortgage for just so you can get a mortgage for a condo. However, the the building itself as a whole and the land beneath it would be owned by some shared entity and I think that's where people kind of have red flags and the risk is really involved in how that's managed. And I think from a legal perspective, the devil's in the details of whether or not that's going to work. And it probably has a lot to do with who's involved. And, you know, are, is this a family that's living in one of these buildings together? Are they friends or are they complete strangers? And can you make that work with complete strangers? I think there maybe are examples of where that's worked and examples where it hasn't worked. But to me, a four unit. Building, if you can build it and sell it as four different units and have a really strong condo agreement that will work well in the long term, I'm not ready for my dreams to be crushed that something like that couldn't work, right? Because it's a smaller building, it's a lot easier to wrap your arms around. This isn't a hundred unit skyscraper that regular people probably have no business managing. And we know there's tons of deferred maintenance issues with large condo entities. So as an ownership option, either as a new building or even taking some of these old four unit buildings and making them into a financial financial structure that can actually be bought rather than rented. I think that would be a really great opportunity to open up just lower, a lower barrier to entry for ownership and neighborhoods. Okay.
1: Let me, let me crush your dreams then. (laughs) Cause I'm, I'm with you, like in terms of an aspiration and I think this would be great. And really if our finance was more bottom up, I think you would see a lot of this. I mean, you, you started this conversation by saying Seattle had a housing crisis. And guess what Seattle did? They built their way out of that housing crisis from the bottom up. They were able to add a number of units and and kind of adjust because their market was a localized market. Let's understand how, when I talk trading paper, let's be clear that what I'm talking about is something called a mortgage-backed security or some type of commercial real estate security. In this case, it would be like a mortgage-backed security security and what you do in a mortgage backed security is you take a bunch of loans mortgages from uh, you know across the country or across the state or whatever region you're working in and you bring those together and you package them up into one product and then you sell different parts of that so you know you make a 4 million dollar security and you sell it to 4000 different people and everybody owns a different a little bit of a whole bunch of different mortgages all right the, the only way that that works is if we can standardize the product. So I have to be able to have a checklist that goes through and says, what year was this built? And, and I can't have a building where part of it was built in 1910, and then there was addition in 1918, and then in 1935, they did a second story. like that. That doesn't work because that doesn't check the box. I have to be able to say here's the ownership structure i've got to be able to say there are all these like standardized boxes where the product that you can go out and build you can build to meet all those standardized boxes and the product that is there or that is highly customized or has all these quirks and nuances um, becomes more difficult to fit into that standardized box and so all of a sudden now your product that you want becomes very risky Because the the concern is, can I sell this on a secondary market? If I write a piece of paper creating this mortgage, can I turn around and sell it on a secondary market? Or am I going to have to, as a local bank, hold this for 30 years with all the interest rate risk and hedging problems and everything else that comes with it? So you might be able to build it cheaper, but you're going to pay a higher rate of interest for that mortgage because of the risk. If you're just a builder building at scale, I want to go out and build a standardized product that I know has a secondary market, that I know has a a buyer at the other end, because I can just pump these things out all day, and I've limited, I've completely eliminated my risk that there's no market for my product.
0: Yeah. Well, and yeah, form definitely follows finance. And if there's not a good way to finance these little buildings... It's going to be unlikely that they're built unless it's through like private equity or patient capital that can fund these kinds of things. Uh, There's also, you know, the article talks a lot about state laws that are beginning to change to actually make these happen. And some of the nuances that are related to building code and zoning that I think are interesting because this is, I mean... Zoning and building code together are a huge deterrent to these buildings that have a lot of nuance that aren't you know quote unquote normal in today's development world. And you know just to throw some I, I was looking at some examples in in Kansas City and just measuring the density of these units, a lot of cities, will have density caps, how many units per acre you can actually put on a lot. And just measuring the typical fourplex, you can have a four unit building on a 50 foot wide lot with a 80 foot, 80 foot wide deep lot, which is roughly around 4,200 square feet. So that's less than a 10th of an acre, which is 40 units per acre. And I think that is the problem with measuring things in that, in that sense, because if you tell somebody in a neighborhood, hey, I'm going to build a, an apartment building and it's going to be 40 units per acre, and I'm going to build it next door to your house, you'll get run out of town. Right, completely <laughs> um, unacceptable. Right. Yeah, completely unacceptable. But when you actually see what these look like on the ground, a lot of these are, are perfectly acceptable in neighborhoods and you see them all all around legacy neighborhoods. So, you know, the zoning it, it may be the least of the, of the barriers <laughs> that that exist. It's definitely not the only barrier, but it's a really important one in order to actually do this do this kind of building right because these are compact, these are intended to be on compact lots with compact parking maybe in the back and I can totally see a scenario where somebody might try to do these and the zoning can cause it to be like a sprawling version of four plexes on a large piece of property.
1: Right. It is fascinating. You know, I've, I've been working on this housing book with my colleague Daniel for a while. And, you know, I've got a, a chapter that begins talking about, uh, what was his name? Nichols, the uh, the developer J. from C. Kansas Nichols. City. JC Nichols, yeah. JC Nichols, thank you. And it's fascinating to me because at the end of World War II, what really came out of uh, the depression and World War II and all the kind of progressive changes around zoning codes and building codes and planning, and then all the reforms we did uh, in terms of housing to keep the housing from spiraling downward during the Great Depression, these all became amazing standardization tools. For us to be able to create this economic explosion at the end of World War II, if you were a developer, now all of a sudden, all you had to do was have a plan in place, get the zoning right. You knew exactly what your lot sizes would be. You knew what your density could be. The engineers could plan the roads and the streets and the pipes and all this stuff, and you could just like repeat. And we we call this cookie cutter now, but then it was just like efficient design. Like we can just repeat this over and over and over again. So many of our urban neighborhoods adopted these codes as a way to, in a sense, reconfigure their own DNA around this idea of we can scale this approach. And in reality, your neighborhood, my neighborhood, the most valuable neighborhoods in any city are neighborhoods that were built at times when there was a deep level of customization. And that that's not to say that like my house is some unique, customized product. I mean, I, I live in a in a a standard. You know, I, I was in my board member Ian Rasmussen's building in his house in New York City, and it's the exact same layout as mine because it's a very standard layout that was done turn of the century um, for the house. You know, the idea that it would be built by someone custom locally uh, from the bottom up made it the nuances of it fit tightly into the neighborhood in a way where density was a welcome side effect, not the thing you were trying to uh, eliminate from your place. I am more and more convinced every day that goes on that we need an army of incremental developers across this country who can hack these financial side of it. And let me put it this way. I feel like the idea of eliminating the zoning restrictions is like a good first step. But the second step has to be building an army of local developers that will work in that construct. Because we're gonna find it very difficult to fix the financial side of this equation for a long time. I mean, I, I don't see us doing the kind of reforms. I know there are people out there working on it, and I know people who are trying to do more crowdsourcing things and more bottom-up finance. But, I mean, you saw what happened with Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, you know, the large people start to lose money, and we throw out the rules and bail them out. Large places are never going to lose money on mortgages. We're going to keep the system the way we have it until it doesn't work anymore. And... It is this cadre of local developers that not only have the skill and the background to be able to deliver these products at the scale we need them in our neighborhoods, but also have kind of the tools and the wherewithal to hack the financial side of the system, to get those boxes checked and get those things funded in a way that you can make transactions happen. And it's heroic. I mean, I, I, it should not be as heroic as it is. It is heroic. But it's also uh, to me like the only way we're going to get through this.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think about. I mean, yes, people people at the top get bailed out, and you know the financial system is inflexible and trying to just keep on keeping on. And at the same time, on the ground because of affordability issues, flexibility for housing is more critical than ever. And Large developers are not going to deliver those solutions. We really do need to have as much flexibility as possible in order to actually house people at a price that they can afford. So I I agree with you. And I don't know what what the solution is in terms of the financing side. I'm sure that there are many incremental developers that have opinions about how that, how this stuff might get done in this high interest rate environment. And it doesn't look like the interest rates are going to go down, you know, anytime very soon. At the same time, small developers are already adaptable. They're very adaptable to the way they work. That whole environment makes me wonder how this actually impacts all of these really large developers that aren't as flexible. They have a product that they're delivering and, you know, if they stop delivering or if that that decreases significantly in coming years, then how does that affect everybody else?
1: Well, and that, that product has evolved and their approaches have evolved in a distorted interest rate market. And so I, I personally think that real interest rates, you know, not suppressed interest rates like we've had for two decades plus but actually, like real market rates of interest will shift the power of of this whole system more localized to 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 people who can function in that system. I I, I think there'll be a transition that will be difficult for everybody, but I think ultimately having real rates of interest and real markets for housing uh, that are localized will benefit the incremental developer to, yeah. to a large degree.
0: Yeah, especially because a lot of incremental developers are not. They're not working in the A plus neighborhoods. They're probably working in places where the do- you know, a, a dollar is expensive. E- interest rates were already high. They were already having to be nimble and be flexible, and you know, it, it's just that they, and they have could never to be- <laughs> borrow.
1: Right? They could never borrow hundred million dollars at point percent no. yeah. interest rate. Like, like that was never part of their business model. So they could never do that at scale. That was required to. to you know, really make money off of the low interest rate environment. Yeah. So it never benefited them in the same way.
0: Yeah. It, yeah. If you never have access to the dumb money, then you've always had to be smart with it. So, <laughs> you know, it's it, in a weird way, maybe it will, it, to be the optimist in the room, maybe it'll level the playing field in some respects. I,
1: I think it will. I think it has that opportunity to. If you ask me you know which, which kind of uh, market will be a better place for the small incremental developer to compete in, one where there is uh, real legitimate market-based rates of interest that are higher or one where the interest rates are artificially suppressed in order to create and induce an environment of growth, um, definitely the real interest rates. I mean, I, I don't even think that is arguable, really.
0: Well, we'll see how that shakes out. I, I hope it means we get more cowboy hotels in the future. I mean, there was an article that we, we were going to talk about, but we ended up talking about this one that had to do with mansions. And that was actually one of my first thoughts is, well, why don't we just chop these up? into I, did, I didn't have the language cowboy hotels at the time, but I I wonder if if these large houses in some places will even be, you know, viable as houses or wanted as houses in the long run. And if they, they would make great cowboy hotels in some instances. It would make
1: fantastic cowboy hotels, (laughs) but try turning that into a standardized product that can be sold to a, a pension fund and you've got a completely different situation, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So bottom up financing is going to be the key. And I think that's the big question is where does the money come from? In order to do this kind of work and scale it in a way that is, you know, really, uh, I think Daniel coined the the expression "having a swarm of incremental developers." That's really, I think, that's actually how you lessen the risk of doing that kind of work in a city is just by building at scale the capacity of individuals doing these types of projects. And with these, with high interest rates, maybe. Maybe it's a better opportunity for cities to focus specifically on that swarm.
1: Well, do you, can I give you one answer? Yeah. To how? So in the 1930s, the federal government created the FHA, the Federal Housing Administration. And the first thing that the FHA did was provide mortgage insurance. Um, they went to local banks and they said, you are requiring 50% equity. We want you to only require 20% equity, so lower down payments on housing, and we will provide you mortgage insurance for that difference. This allowed local banks who couldn't take that much risk to increase the amount of risk they were willing to take um, because essentially they were insured by the federal government for that extra risk. The federal government is like not interested in doing that today because they're very tied into the top-down banking system and all that. And they, they already do – You know, mortgage insurance is already provided and they've created Fannie and Freddie and secondary markets and bailed them out time and time again. And they're, they're really connected to that system. But if you want uh, local developers to be able to do this kind of stuff at scale, there's nothing saying philanthropy can't provide the mortgage insurance on that cowboy hotel. Because your local bank is not going to make that mortgage if they're worried that in distress, they can't offload it onto a secondary market. But if uh, philanthropy comes in and says, look, we'll provide the mortgage insurance that will give you the surety that if there is a default on this, that you're not going to lose money. Philanthropy can do that for you. I mean you see philanthropy all the time saying we're investing in affordable housing and we'll put all kinds of money into building new units. If if they put one percent of what they're using on that kind of stuff into just insuring uh, small scale developers to do these kind of things, banks could freely write loans, and you would see a, a huge boom in local housing.
0: Wow, that's really interesting.
1: It is, but it's not the way that philanthropy looks at themselves today, in this marketplace.
0: Well, the marketplace is changing.
1: <laughs> well, it is, and I hope they will. But you know, yeah. you think about the optics of that. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense, right? But think of the optics of that. The optics of that is, well, you're just helping a developer make more money,
0: or we're building four plexes that people can buy, and it's it's our it's our new first time home buyer. Home option, right? It's 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 the revitalization of the starter home.
1: Yeah, we we are actually revitalizing neighborhoods and creating a market for a product that doesn't exist at scale today. That yeah, our community would be better off if it existed at scale.
0: Yeah, and can create maybe more affordable renter and ownership options can help build back middle class wealth. I'm so idealistic, but, you know, don't crush my dreams. There's got to be a way to do this. I love these little buildings.
1: <laughs> hey, I wrote a book called The Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. There's there we go. Idealism, yeah. idealism is in our DNA. <laughs>
0: That's right. Um, <laughs> Abby, okay. you and me. Yeah, we can be I know. We're going to Without, without reservation.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: right. Okay. Well, let's leave it there. That's, that's really interesting. Um, and I hope somebody, I hope somebody out there listening figures that out because we really need more co- cowboy hotels into this country.
1: <laughs> There's yeah. enough room
0: in this town for more than one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so before we finished today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been watching, reading, up to these days. So, uh, Chuck, I'm going to throw it to you. What have you been up to?
1: I want to talk, and this is not to rub anything in your face, but I'm, you know, it's spring and optimism we just brought up. And in spring, optimism is it kind of eternal, right? Particularly when it comes to baseball. And I had someone this week challenge me saying that the Twins were going to lose their first three games to the Kansas City Royals because they're a big Royals fan. And I knew they were joking me, um, but I actually think the opposite could be true. I think the Twins could win all three of these first games and sweep the Royals because the Royals are really bad this year. But even more than that, the, my team, the Minnesota Twins, seems like we have it like a, a lot of the stars aligned. Um, we could be really very good. And going into this season, it's the first year in my life that I remember having five pitchers who were like legitimate pitchers. I mean, we always have like one or two scrap heap kind of players that we, you know, wheel in and 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 prop up on a mound and say, throw a ball. And all of a sudden now we have like a legit rotation and we have a good lineup and we have a decent bullpen. And I'm looking at a baseball team that, you know, I love baseball. i I have a tiny season ticket package with my daughter uh, who loves baseball. Uh, We have a saying around our house that we love everybody. We don't hate anybody except for the Yankees. And so, you know, it's kind of fun uh, to now kick off baseball season, have it in the air, and start a year where I'm feeling very optimistic about things. Which, you know, as a Royals fan, you should feel optimistic because everybody should feel optimistic in April. You could start to get pessimistic in May and June, but everyone should be optimistic in April. But I am—I feel like legitimately very optimistic about my baseball team this year.
0: Well, I'm really excited for you. I'm not—I'm—I'm <laughs> I'm a bad Kansas Cityan, and I'm just not a big baseball person. But I will—I'll wear blue. I'll be supportive, and in the ways that I can. Um, so I'm very happy for you that you have a great team and we'll get to go to some games with your daughter. Is it the daughter who's going to school soon?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's the one who will be at the university of Minnesota. So she, um, she will be just a light rail ride away from target field. And we have one of these 20 game, 20 seat packages where you get 20 tickets and you can use them whenever you want, but then you get the best seat available in your section. And she's already claimed half of them. Oh yeah, really? She's already claimed half of them, but she's like, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm going to these games." So I'm like, "Cool kid, that'll be great." But as long as you go to with dad, you know that's the whole point.
0: <laughs> yeah. So now it's her it's her ticket membership, and yeah, well that's awesome. Well, I have had a really really long week working actually with Monty Anderson and Bernice Radel, which they're two developers out of Buffalo, New York and Dallas, Texas. And they came to Kansas City to help with the school that we are working on with a local land trust that acquired it. And it's like a it's a huge building. <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't follow the advice of doing the next small thing, but it is a neighborhood landmark. It's in good hands. The land trust is, you know, doing some really good work in that neighborhood and we are officially under construction after several years and getting getting it rezoned and working a lot with the neighborhood and finding out what to do with this building and I am there's just nothing more exciting than going onto a roof of a building that has a new roof on it and there's no more water going into it. And it's just so cool. It's so cool to see this building cleaned up and to really understand the vision and to bring the engineer in and, you know, understand how all of this is going to come together. So yeah, that this is going to be in my life until it's done. Basically, I... I want to see this, this project through, and I'm very excited about it.
1: Nice. I, I do feel like one of the things we have stripped away from Americans is this idea of being able to work at things in your, in your neighborhood, at your block level. And having, having that work culminate in the place that you live in and that you care about becoming a better place over time. And there's something like radically fulfilling about that. It's not that you have to design the Empire State Building or the Lincoln Memorial to be a success. You can actually just make like your local building a little bit nicer and have that be a legacy that transcends you and your life and what you're about. And every time I'm around people who are doing that kind of work, they get like you, they get the smile on their face. Uh, they start to glow. They're like, I'm 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 vested in this. I want to see this happen. And it's beautiful. And I just wish more and more people could have that experience because it's very um it's very fulfilling, right?
0: Well, it's like your office, right? Aren't you in a former yeah. school and it's become like a like a mix yeah, it's like an art center. And that's exactly the type of project that we're doing here. We're hoping to have a few commercial kitchens within it, but it I mean, it has an old gym. And we're hoping to bring in somebody who could do a dance studio or a climbing gym or, you know, there's an old music room. And how cool would it be to have some kind of music area where you could have people that do lessons or bands that wants to store their equipment there and practice or maybe a, a recording studio? So I feel like the different spaces within the school start to lend to what we could use it for in a modern way and it's a i don't know it's it's also kind of an example of like backing into the whole project in a way that meets the market rather than trying to you know turn it into luxury apartments and we're trying to attract people with higher incomes that don't live here in order to make things work i i'm really drawn to this idea of like backing backing this project into what people will actually pay and scaling things. It's really the Monty approach, right? It's like scaling things to a smaller scale to make it work and having a bigger mix of things happening within it. So yeah, I'm, I'm pumped. It's, there's nothing more energizing than working on this project, to be honest with you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I can tell on the other end of it, it is so much fun to walk into this building every day. And have just the life kind of flow out of it. I have one studio in this building, and next to me they're playing music all day, and up the hall they're doing pottery, and there's uh, you know, different, different places doing different stuff. There's always something kind of fun going on. And we are gonna get the school, the school district still technically owns the building and is leasing it. But they're going away in a couple of years, and then the the building like is owned by the artist. It's half live work, half um, artist studios, and that's going to open up the two gyms. It's going to open up a bunch of the grounds, a bunch of the stuff that has been kind of off limits to us up to this point. And there's big plans to make amazing use of it. It is wow. so cool. Yeah.
0: Well, that's that's really interesting. I'm curious who who has developed the school that you're in. Because, I mean, we're we're literally focusing on doing the first floor first and occupying it and then moving, it's three stories. So, you know, moving up as we go is really the approach. And so it sounds like a similar kind of phased occupancy uh, approach.
1: Absolutely, yep. Well you someday when you come to Brainerd, you will get to see my office and the whole building. Yeah, I want a tour.
0: Yeah. I want a and, tour of uh, the whole building.
1: Yeah. I will show you I mean, I, I I will show you the exact spot where I met my wife when I was in eighth grade.
0: Yes, um, cool.
1: And um yeah, so cool. <laughs> it is cool. Back when you went to school there. <laughs> I did go to school here. They closed it um about a decade after I was done here, but I went to okay. eighth and ninth grade in uh, in this building. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, that's mm-hmm. great. Yeah. We'll have to do a trip to to Brainerd one day. Um, soon. You won't be able to sell me a house, but.
1: Oh, don't count on it.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. Well, uh, we will end it there. Thanks everybody for listening to another episode of UpZoned. And thanks Chuck for joining today keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks Chuck. Thanks Abby. Take care. Bye.